So good morning, everybody. Uh, I want to start today by laying down some declarative truth to you. Though just the way things are, you know, that's how I normally preach. I just hit you in the face with stuff and you just have to deal with it. And um, my declarative truth today, just the way it is, is that there are some questions that we should never ask. That's my truth. Some of you may maybe have heard the old adage that if you don't want to know the answer to something, don't ask the question. Have you heard that? Yes. Yes, someone has. All right. Sometimes ignorance is bliss. Uh, I want you to take these questions, for example. I've taken them from a list that I found online on the website whatculture.com. Ten questions you really don't want to know the answer to, and I chose my five favorite. So let me start by, today by sharing those. With you. Here are my five favorite questions that you should never ask. Number one, what's living in my belly button? You don't want to know. Not my belly button, your belly button too. My second favorite, can birds bring down an airplane? You don't want to know. Third, Just how clean is my local swimming pool? Don't ask. Fourth, I didn't know people were worried about this, but I thought it was interesting. Can robots really read my mind? Apparently, you do not want to know the answer to that question. And here's one that I definitely don't want to know the answer to. How many dead bodies are in Disneyland? Real question. You don't want to know. Now, these are questions that you really should never ask, and I really mean that. And I'm bringing this up because I found that actually when it comes to people and their faith, I think that we all, or most of us, have our own lists of questions that we're afraid to ask because we're concerned we may not like the answer. And if the answer is what we think it is, it might actually undermine our faith, we're afraid or put us in serious conflict with our friends, or make us one of those people. Or maybe we'll find out that there's no answer at all, and that feels a little bit unsettling. Whatever the case may be, uh, we're starting a new series today where those are the questions we want to ask. Faith, I think, is actually designed to help us overcome our fears. And besides, I think this is true that The more we hide from our fears or refuse to ask certain questions, the more power those questions have in our lives. So I'm going to kick us off today with a question that I found is scary to a lot of people. And I want to try and just sort of get the ball rolling. But I want to tell you straight up, there's three more weeks in this series, and I have no idea what the topics are going to be. Because I want to get those questions from you. Okay? So if you look in your bulletin, you'll find a little pink slip where you can anonymously write any question that you have about faith, about Christianity, about our church, um, a question that you might be afraid to know the answer to or something. Maybe it's just troubled you for years, a question you're afraid to answer or ask yourself, so you've been ignoring it. And for the next three weeks, I'm going to choose one or two questions each week uh, and give you my best take uh, <laughs> I'm going to lay down the truth again. I'm going to give my best take on how to think about those things. 
and I think it's going to be really exciting. For me, these are my favorite kinds of conversations. So you're doing me a big favor, and everyone else here too. So we won't be able to answer all the questions, but if you've got one, put on that pink slip, or you can just go to our Facebook page. There's a link uh, to a Google page. You can go and type it in. Totally anonymous. All right? So today, I'm going to start with a question, and I hope will give you a little bit of an idea of what I'm talking about. Um, and it's a question that you'll see in the title of the sermon today, Why Am I at Church? Why am I at church? Now, for many of you who are on the front end of faith, maybe you're just a little curious about Jesus or just somehow ended up here today. Uh, you never expected to be in a church, either for the first time or again. And if you're honest, you're really surprised that you're here anyway. And you might even be thinking to yourself, what in the world's going on? You know, maybe you've experienced a personal tragedy and you're looking for some comfort or meaning or something to help you through that time. Maybe you've done everything right in your life. And to everyone else, you seem very successful, but you feel terrible. And you think there's something missing and you're looking for it. Maybe you're just hungry for something more and you haven't found it. Maybe you're just here because of a girl or a boy. Whatever your situation, I think what we're about to talk about today will give you some really good reasons to stick around for a while. Now, for other folks this morning... Uh, you've identified as a Christian for a, a good while, uh, and you may be afraid to ask this question. You know, I found that our church has a way of attracting people who have one foot out the door in terms of their faith. And somehow, even whether they realize it or not, and somehow when they get in our community, they feel safe enough to actually sort of explore those types of questions, but it can be a little unsettling. So that might be you. And you might be asking yourself, instead of why am I at church, why am I still at church? And for the rest of our group today, you know, maybe you're not on the front end of faith or considering leaving through the back door or whatever, but what we're going to talk about today, I think, helps to speak in one way about what makes church relevant. Something that even as a pastor, I think about quite a bit. Because I feel like the answers to that question are changing. So let's look at this question today. And I want to do it in a little bit of a different way. This, this isn't going to be an exposition on one passage of Scripture, which is normally what I like to do. There's going to be Scripture for sure, but I just want to tell you a story uh, of a conversation I had about a month and a half ago that I thought was really enlightening to this end. And I think we can pull out some things from that conversation I had that can be really helpful. So some background. About once a year... Um, I run sort of a small group for five weeks called Faith Reimagine. It's a group that, among other things, is designed to be a safe place for people to ask the type of questions we're talking about in this series. So if people are wrestling with questions about faith, or particularly faith in Jesus, or their experience with Christianity, this is a place where we can come and sort of hash it out, talk about what's essential, what isn't, what can we hold on to, what can we let go of. And so, and by the way, I've been invited to do this on Penn's campus in September. I'm not sure what day of the week it is, but anyone here is certainly invited to come, but particularly if you're a college student um, or a graduate student, it'll be right near where you are all the time. Now, more details are, are coming out about that. But the last time around, I was surprised uh, by the stories that people told. I've done this group a couple times, but this time we started each group by 
having one or two people share their experiences uh, that related to the question at hand for that week. And what we heard in terms of stories and experiences was so terrible and shocking that without thinking, this is a question I don't know if pastors are, are supposed to ask, I asked the question, why are you still here? Seriously. And that started us down a path of conversation. It was a real conversation. You're going to have that conversation. It needs to be legit. So one of the possible answers that our group could come to was, uh, I'm brainwashed and conditioned to go to church, and I can't help myself. So I'm here, even though I'm hurt over and over again. So that had to be on the table. You know, maybe that is one of the reasons. For some people, that might have been their experience. But I feel like as we chatted, there were a few themes that came up that I found to be super profound and encouraging. And I want to share just a few of them with you because I think you might find the same thing. And so what I'm sharing here is really what other people said that I found to be really meaningful. I think maybe the first and most profound theme that came out, I don't know if you're supposed to put your most profound idea at the beginning of the sermon instead of the end, but here it goes, was that Jesus is so good. As simple as that, Jesus is so good. As we talked, as we had this conversation, everyone had some sort of feeling, connection, experience with Jesus that they just couldn't shake. Even through all of the mess, the person of Jesus was so compelling, had touched their heart in some real way, had made some real difference that they couldn't just let him go. He was too good. You know, this last week, um, I read a blog post by a gentleman named Kevin Garcia. He's a person who identifies as both Christian and queer. And as such, he's had to deal with more painful interactions with the church than I care to get into, but he also gets asked the question quite often, why are you still a Christian? More than most. And his response runs in line with the sentiments that I heard from the people in our group when he writes this. He said, I'm irrevocably compelled by the person of Jesus. And it's not the divinity of Christ that compels me to believe. It's the humanity of Jesus that keeps me holding on to my faith. The Jesus who got frustrated and flipped tables. The Jesus who journeyed into a desert and wrestled with demons. The Jesus who fed and clothed and blessed those who had nothing and could give nothing. The Jesus who, towards the end of his ministry, didn't display his power through miracles but by his words. The Jesus who broke boundaries of race and gender and clean versus unclean. The Jesus who said that it was the poor who were blessed, not the powerful. The Jesus who said it's easier to say your sins are forgiven than to tell a lame person to get up and walk, and they did it anyways. The Jesus who let his mind be changed by a woman who was an ethnic minority. The Jesus who told us what the kingdom of God was like. The Jesus who taught us that the power of God was manifested when we learned to love each other. The Jesus who answered questions with more questions because he knew that answers were not the thing that satisfied, but rather endless curiosity about the divine. That's the Jesus that keeps me holding those principles, those ideas of what it means to be the best kind of human, to let weak things be called strong and poor things be called rich. It's upside down and backward and grace-filled in ways I cannot fully comprehend, and yet I believe 
And scripture, I think, again and again, when it describes Jesus, when the people who write about Jesus in the scriptures try to describe who he is and why he's so different and what makes a difference, they, they, they struggle to do it justice. But they do a good job. Uh, Paul, the early church father in Ephesians 1, describes Jesus as summing up everything, being the unifier of the entire universe. Or in 2 Corinthians, he says that Jesus is the yes to every promise that God has ever made. In Hebrews, another Christian scripture, Jesus is described as the exact representation of God's being. So good. It's like a taste, a real encounter with him in some way is just hard to shake. In the telling of the life of Jesus called John, Jesus' disciples are asked a question by him. He's just given a really tough teaching, teaching about how you have to eat his blood and drink, eat his flesh and drink his blood to be his follower, things like that. Everybody leaves but the 12 who are his closest followers. And he says, you do not want to leave too, do you? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We've come to believe and to know that you're the Holy One of God. When you have connected to that in some way, you can't just let it go. Even if you have some really tough experiences, you've tasted and seen, as the scriptures say, that the Lord is good. And there's something that connects to who you are and your hopes for what your life could be that you all of a sudden know are entangled with and need to be entwined with Jesus. It's that difference-making. So the first place that this conversation went was stories and people talking about how attracted they were to Jesus despite everything. The next thing that kept people engaging, kept them engaging with other people of faith. I was surprised with the stories I heard that these cool people would be in a room together with other people talking about faith. Because that had not been in safe places for them before. Why are you here? And I think this was part of it. I could sense that people had this sentiment in their hearts. I hope for something truly awesome in community. Is it me? I tried to research this a little bit, but it seems to me, I don't know if this is a trending hashtag or what it is, but I tend to hear the phrase, I hate people, more and more these days. Is this true? Is it just me? You can tell me, Brad, it's just you. I hate people. Or sometimes people just go, oh, people. Or, oh, people suck. You know, something, one of those, right? Is it just me? Talk to me. No, No, it's not just me. Okay, good. I'm not going crazy. But it feels like today, and maybe not, maybe everybody says this throughout history every day, but it feels like we're more cynical about other people and social groups than we ever have been, at the same time, more hungry for connection and community. It was just a couple years ago, I was doing my own research, trying to figure out what people are thinking about and talking about, and I was asking people in coffee shops, in front of City Hall, wherever I could, about a lot of spiritual things and how they connected in community, 
And I had 11 people in a row express to me that they wanted to feel connected to more people, to a community. Some of them had girlfriends or boyfriends, had family, but that wasn't enough. They wanted to be a part of something, a community. And 11 people in a row told me they weren't, not even close. Most of them didn't feel like they had any type of friend group, let alone any type of community. And to me, that just speaks to me of a hunger that we have that I don't want to overstate, seems like it's just innate in us for something. To expect community to be a part of our life in a good way. Extrovert, introvert, whoever you are personality-wise, needing that. Hungering for it, even. We want relationships, good ones, healthy ones. Ones where we make each other better. But I don't think we know how to do it very well. We need help. It's a lot easier to be other things like codependent or isolate. You know, it's like isolate ourselves or go way too fast and get a weird relationship. You know what I'm talking about? Especially in dating. That's another sermon that's coming up. (laughs) Believe me, for that one, I had to do a lot of, like, it's been a long time. That's all I'm saying. But to this end, the Christian scriptures, I think, make some bold claims. For starters, Jesus said that where two or more gathered, just two or more in his name, that he was going to be there, his presence would be there. They gathered in his name. So this so good Jesus is available. His living presence comes near in some mystical and I think often very practical ways when people gather in his name. And it makes a difference. I think that's part of the reason you're here today. I hope, actually, even if your life is going great, you're hungry for some connection with God this morning, and you're hoping that by gathering with other people whose heart are set on the same thing, you can experience God in a way that you can't alone. The Apostle Paul, I mentioned him earlier, started most of the first churches, wrote letters to them. They became Christian scripture. Describes the community of believers that centers around Jesus as the body of Christ. It's still solidifying this idea that we connect to God through each other. And he wrote this. He said, the bi- um, he said uh, that as we connect to each other and use what God has given us to serve each other, that the body of Christ, he writes, may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. I don't know if you've caught that last phrase, but that's the one I think that is in us that keeps us longing for community, even if we don't have community in our lives, or even if we've had negative experience. This desire to attain to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ, to me, that's describing your life as it was meant to be, as you were created to experience it. Being the person God made you to be, doing the things God made you to do, having the relationships he created you to be in. That's part of your life. The fullness. The whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Everything God could have for you. Everything God has created you to be, do, experience the deepest joy, the longest sense of fulfillment, whatever that is, 
this phrase communicates that something about that is available only through connecting to God through other people. And I think on some level, we know this. So the folks I interviewed were hungry for this type of connection, this community that makes a difference, that connects us to God. I think for the folks in Faith Reimagined, the conversation we were in indicated that despite their worst experiences, because they wanted this, they somehow knew they couldn't have it alone. So here they were in a room trying to figure it out trying to find a new way forward. We just know somewhere that community is a necessary part of becoming all that we can be and knowing God for all that he is. We know that community can and should be this, so we hunger for it. We come back to it. I don't think we come back to community because we have an illness and we can't stop joining up with something that will hurt us. I think we come back to community because we hope and we expect it should be profound and amazing, even if imperfect. It should be. Which brings me to the third thing that I think we noticed together, that the understanding of what community should be was just one of the shoulds that people connected to. And this is the third thing. I know all the shoulds. What does that mean? Well, as people were sharing story after story after story, a word that kept coming up was should. It should be like this, but it was like this. If it was like Jesus, it should be like this, but it was like this. And these, all these shoulds connected to it that just speaks that we all kind of know. We all kind of know instinctively, not perfectly. Most people kind of get what's important to Jesus. They understand he was for the poor. They understand on some level that he cared for the least, that he would sacrifice himself for other people. And all those shoulds communicate to us what life should be like, but isn't. And this kingdom of God that Jesus was bringing, that's the thing that flips everything. And Jesus tells all these stories, these parables, or he gives this sermon called the Sermon on the Mount. He says, you've heard it's this way, but I tell you it's this way. <laughs> Do you feel poor? Give what you have to become rich. Counterintuitive. Paradox after paradox. But we know when we hear it, when we see it. You see anybody sacrifice for any stupid thing in a movie, and you know that's right. You see anybody in a movie hoard power for themselves or use it to get their way at the expense of others, and you know it's wrong. That's how bullies use their power. Does anybody in this room think Jesus was a bully? At all. I don't care if you've heard just one story about him. You know he's not a bully. You know he's a servant. We all know what should be. We have a lot to learn about how that plays out. We have a lot of misconceptions. I'm not saying that we get everything. But we're all attracted to Jesus. We know the shoulds. And that keeps us coming back because you know it shouldn't be like the negative things we've experienced. And because maybe we've had a little bit of a taste of Jesus or a lot of a taste of Jesus, we know that can happen. 
when speaking of how to explain the good news of Jesus to people, um, professor of philosophy, I think at uh, USC, Dallas Willard put it this way. He said, you help people understand their need, and then you tell them that if they put their confidence in Christ now, in the sense that confidence ordinarily has in human life, which is to trust and to act on that trust, they will come to know a different kind of life than they presently have. They will enter into an interactive life with God and his kingdom. And there will be differences in their life, which can only be understood in those terms. The kingdom of God is what should be. It's heaven come to earth. And following Jesus is following him right into that. And it takes risk, and you have to use faith because it, it doesn't, you know what should be, but the way to get there is scary because it costs a lot of times. Or it's uncomfortable. But that's what following Jesus is about. And so even being here today is a risk for a lot of us that we take because we know what should be. That we know what could be. The way life ought to be. It's found in following Jesus into his kingdom, interacting with him there. And we know things should be different. So we're still here. Looking to give it another go. Our hearts reaching out to experience what should be and live in that fullness. I like the way Jesus, in one of his short, short, short stories, described this. He said, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure. Treasure? I don't know what that is. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When someone found it, they hid it again, and then in their joy went and sold all they had and bought the field. When you see what should be, when you've had even just a little taste of it, <coughs> can't let it go and what should be can be and not perfectly but is all right so to warm myself up for the next three weeks um does anyone have any questions about today's sermon so you might have some far-reaching questions about all kinds of things, um, which you can write down on your card, but just about what I've said today. Here, I've heard that you cannot do a Q&A unless you sit on a stool. So, oh, now I'm a, cool, I'm a cool pastor sitting on a stool, just talking like in my living room. So, any questions? And if there's no questions, that's fine. But if you have one, we'll see how we'll see how this goes. It's going to just be the thirty seconds where Brad looks really cool or really stupid, depending on your perspective. All right, I'm going to take that to mean I totally rocked that sermon, and there are no questions. But um, remember, I have nothing to talk about next week unless you give it to me. So uh, whatever your questions are about faith, about the church, about your experience with Jesus, Christians, or I don't even know, 
whatever that question is you're afraid to ask, um, go ahead, write it on that little pink slip and drop it in for me. And not just for me, for everyone here, because I bet you will find that the question you're afraid to ask is a question probably 10 or 12, at least other people in this room right now are also afraid to ask. Is that a deal? Is that a deal? Okay, all right. Is it a deal? Okay, thank you. Let's pray. Uh, God, thank you for this time to be cool sitting on a stool. No. Thank you for this time to chat and share some of the experiences around following Jesus that um, people have had. I just pray that you take the next three weeks and today, make the very most of them, that they would be super helpful for people. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Um, if you're on the worship team, if you can make your way forward. Uh, also, there's a representative from our prayer team that's going to come and share some of the impressions they got while they were praying earlier today. Good morning. Prayer team was praying today, and um, the phrase from the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us, kind of um, jumped out.